the spring feasts were fulfilled in chronological order. You remember, uh, starting with Passover was, was Nisan 14. Unleavened bread was Nisan 15. First fruits was um, the day after the first Sabbath during the unleavened bread. And then Pentecost was 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. So remember, chronological time order, all fulfilled literally. So those uh, spring feasts all fulfilled in Christ's first coming. But we, we, we can also see that the feasts were fulfilled on the day that God had assigned for them. There, there was no break in this sequential order of the feast. So the order of the fall feast, here is uh, trumpets, which was uh, the very first day of the year for Israel there in Tishri. It's a one-day event. Atonement was ten days later on Tishri number 10. Again, a one-day event. And then you had Tabernacles, which was uh, Tishri 15 to 21. So obviously that's a week-long event. And so based on the principles that we've already observed in the spring feast, if you kind of carry those over, hopefully you should see a pattern developing here. And uh, if if you expect to see that same pattern, uh, it might be helpful to you. But in the fall feast, there's a... The single-day feast should be fulfilled with a single-day supernatural event. So we want to be, I'm, I'm trying to be consistent here. I find this helpful if you're trying to interpret this. And then, of course, the week-long feast should be fulfilled with a supernatural event, followed by some age, whatever that might be. And so since those spring feasts were fulfilled in this unbroken chronological order, then guess what? come into the fall feast or the autumn feast should be a similar thing should expect to see a similar order take place so the feasts were given to israel of course under the under the the law of moses and uh, they were to be commemorated they were to be remembered they were to be celebrated they were continual reminders to israel of, of god in his word it was a time of worship. It was a time to look back. Those are all important things. And so they could see God working in their past. They could look forward to what He's going to do in the future. You say, well, uh, th- there's a type going on here? Yes. <laughs> what, is, what is the type? Well, you say, what is a type? Well, uh, here's how I understand type. A type just denotes a, a figure. It could be an image could be a representation of anything really uh, it could be painted engraved it could be expressed in any form of imitation there's many different types in scripture so the the feasts of israel are just think of them as pictures think of them as illustrations think of them as images of israel's redemption so they're of course they're pointing to christ But uh, there's a warning for us here, my friends. Here's the warning. Don't lose sight of the central focus of the feast, which is primarily having to do with Israel's redemption. So remember, spring feast pointing to Christ's first coming, and the fall feast pointing to Christ's second coming. It's interesting, uh, even amongst conservative, Bible-believing Christians, you get different views on stuff. 
So let me just, uh, I'm just going to quickly throw out to you some different views I've found. These are, by the way, these are all coming from premillennialists. These are people who believe that Christ is going to come before the his thousand year reign of Christ, the thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. So there, there's at least four premillennial views that deal with the Feast of Trumpets. The first view is uh, that the Feast of Trumpets is fulfilled by the rapture of the church. There's a couple problems with this. Uh, well, I think they're problems anyway. For example, the, the, the spring feasts were fulfilled consecutively. And so this view separates the fall feast by seven years. Uh, second problem is the feasts are for Israel. They're not for the church. Okay. So if you're, if you're, if you're one of these people who's uh, into replacement theology where the church replaces Israel, then you're going you're gonna to have to do some hermeneutical gymnastics to uh, get to some interesting conclusions here. I'm not one of those people. But uh, this view assumes the church fulfills the feast, not Israel fulfilling the feast. I have a problem with that. That's not a, that's not a helpful hermeneutic. Uh, the third problem is this view suggests the rapture is going to occur on the first of Tishri. I hope you have a problem with that. <laughs> I'm not picking a date for Christ to, to return. Uh, people have in the past, and they've made themselves fools in the process. Uh, it certainly goes against the imminent return of Christ, which could happen at any moment. Uh, there is a second view in regard to the Feast of Trumpets. It's this, that it's um, fulfilled by the regathering of Israel. Now, the first problem with this one is the view disregards the fact that all the one-day spring feasts were fulfilled in one day. All of them fulfilled in Christ's first coming. The second problem, the view breaks the chronological order of the fall feast. So anyway, these are just some of the problems that people have with, with that view. And then the third view is the Feast of Trumpets is fulfilled in the rapture of the church and then the awakening of Israel. So there's, a, there's two fulfillments going on here in this. You might call it a dual fulfillment. So two problems that I've noticed uh, coming out of this is the view breaks the chronological order of the fall feast. The second problem is it suggests the rapture, again, is going to occur on Tishri the first. So again, that argues against the imminent return of Christ. The fourth view is that the Feast of Trumpets will be literally and consecutively fulfilled at the end of the tribulation period. So why, should you, why, why, why might you want to believe in this particular view? Well, Here's some things to think about. Most people believe that Christ is going to come back uh, at the end of the tribulation, before the millennium. We call them premillennials. They believe that, that the Feast of Trumpets pictures the millennial reign of Christ. And if that is true, then it would be logical to place the fulfillment of the fall feast at the end of the tribulation period. I know this is kind of confusing. Bear with me. But uh, what's the tribulation about? Well, there's there's several things going on there, but one of the things is it's 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 all about God's redemption of Israel. God has some great purposes taking place during the tribulation period. It's not all doom and gloom. And it's interesting if you look at one of God's prophets, particularly the prophet Zechariah, he seems to 
uh, have that in view when, when he's given his prophecies that Israel's going to be redeemed. For example, let me I'll just give you a few scriptures here. Look at this one, Zechariah 12, verse 9. Keep going. There we go. Zechariah 12, verse 9. Here's what it says. On that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, obviously that's Jesus, what are they going to do? They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So they're going to see Jesus. When's Israel going to see Jesus? They didn't notice him the first time on the whole. They didn't notice their Messiah. But they will the second time. His second coming, they will notice him. And they will mourn. So note there's a time of mourning after Israel looks on Christ. Now, note uh, here in uh, chapter 14 that the Messiah, when he comes back, he's not in the clouds like the rapture talks about, but he actually comes down to the earth, and where does he come? Well, Zechariah tells you in chapter 14, verse 4, where he comes. Look at this. He says, on that day, when, when it's talking about Jesus coming back, on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. Remember what, what the angel Jesus ascended to heaven. Remember what the angel said about Jesus? He's going to come back. The very same place he left from, he's going to come back, right there at the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem. So what's the point? What's the point? Well, something has to happen to cause Israel to look upon Jesus, and, and something has to cause them to see Jesus for who he is, their Messiah, and actually cause them to mourn over their sin. What could that be? Well, Zechariah 12, the pattern uh, here is similar to the Feast of Trumpets, where Israel's awakened spiritually, and then it's followed by ten days of mourning. If you come into chapter 13 of Zechariah, it's interesting because here it's describing a fountain that's open for sin and for their uncleanness. Again, i got it on the screen for you here if you're not looking at your Bible. Zechariah 13, verse 1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David. That's, that's Israel. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For what purpose? Look at that. It's to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So perhaps this is the fulfillment of Israel's national day of atonement. So all those, atonement, those days of atonements were the covering of their sin, looking forward to, to, to Jesus Christ's ultimate atonement, of course. And so, then you come to Zechariah 14, verse 4, uh, which we already read. We see Messiah comes back, Jesus comes back, and, and he comes right down to the monobolos, the very place where he left. And so the passage then, if you, if you want to read on about that, it gives a a wonderful description of the Messiah's millennial reign on the earth. So there's there's all kinds of interesting things that are going to change on the earth. Please don't read it right now. 
Uh, there's some cool stuff there. You can read that uh, entire chapter at another time. I encourage you to do so. So that's um, a lot of information for you. I hope you get something <laughs> something important out of that. Is Again, they're all pointing to Christ. So it's a one-day event. Um, at least the Feast of Trumpets was. It's pointing to something happening in the future. And so then there was to have they were to have this break in between leading up to the Day of Atonement. That's the second of the fall feast, the Day of Atonement. Again, look at Leviticus chapter 23, because it mentions the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 23. Verse 26. Verse 26 says that Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to Yahweh. You shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before Yahweh your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person will destroy from among his people. Or sorry, God says, I will destroy from among his people. Verse 31. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. And on the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. So that's what Leviticus 23 tells us about the Day of Atonement. Now this had, uh, again, like many of the feasts, multiple names. The Jews called this festival Yom Kippur. Just means Day of Atonement, and you say, "Well, what does atonement mean?" Well, I like to. If you break up the word atonement, that helps me to understand what it means. If you if you put lines in between, it's at one mint, at one mint, where God makes you at one with Himself, because the Bible says you're His enemy before you become a Christian. Uh, the the idea is uh, atonement. It was it was meant to be a covering. Uh, it was to conceal, and so God ordained this particular day as a covering for the entire nation of Israel. Again, a single day feast occurring on Tishri ten, so ten days after the first fall feast. And notice uh, we just read in, in Leviticus twenty three. It was a holy convocation. A holy convocation. You say, well, what is that? <laughs> that just, uh, what it's talking about there just means it's a large formal meeting. A large formal meeting for the entire nation. A lot of celebrating going on. It was also a solemn occasion where people humbled their hearts. And one of the things they would do is they would mourn. They would repent over their sins. It was considered a day of national fasting. So, notice, we just read in Leviticus 23, God told Israel to afflict themselves. One of the ways they afflicted themselves is through not eating, through the fasting. 
traditionally, not biblically, by the way, the, the fasting was defined as abstaining from food, drink, uh, even marital relations. Uh, traditionally, they weren't allowed to wear leather shoes. Imagine walking around in without their leather shoes. They weren't allowed to use cosmetics, no lotions, uh, no washing of any part of the body other than the fingers and the eyes. That's traditionally. Uh, if you read uh, traditional writings, uh, that's what they said. And they, the other thing that happened is that the tabernacle and the temple rituals included offerings made by fire. And so the order of the ceremony was is given for us in Leviticus chapter 16, which we haven't read. Uh, it's a very long passage. So if you want to know more about the Day of Atonement, God gave you an entire chapter, Leviticus 16. But basically, here's what happened, okay? Uh, my sources for this other than Leviticus 16 are some other writings from the Jews. And I've given you a, a PowerPoint picture here of supposedly what happened. But one of the things that happened on the Day of Atonement was the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifices on the mercy seat. You remember where the mercy seat was? It was right there in the Holy of Holies, a very special little room uh, in the, in, in within the temple itself, the temple proper. On this day, the high priest would pronounce the name of God ten times. He would do it six times in connection with the bull, three times in connection with the goat, and once in connection with the lots. So all up, mentioning Yahweh ten times. Uh, three groups of sacrifices were made. We read about those already, but there, there was this continual burnt offerings going on. Uh, they were having festive sacrifices, and uh, then there was other stuff that was designed for the Day of Atonement. There was also a scapegoat. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? We still use, sometimes we might use the word scapegoat, but uh, do you actually know the meaning behind scapegoat? Scapegoat, uh, scape, sorry, scapegoat is a live goat. The, uh, the live one was to be let go and just to wander out into the wilderness. Which is interesting. I'll explain more about um, the scapegoat in, in a moment here. But just, just remember, there was a live goat and there's to be a dead goat. Uh, the live one was the scapegoat. And so uh, this was just one of the things happened during this feast. So the feast is graphically showing there's a weakness that is inherent within the Mosaic law. It could not fulfill everything. And in fact, isn't that what Hebrews tells us? Hebrews tells us that Christ is superior in every way. And that's why Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So, that high priest, well, there's the scripture, that high priest going in every year on the Day of Atonement could never ultimately deal with your sin. It was only a covering. So, why did God tell them to do this? 
if it couldn't actually deal with their sin? Well, it was a reminder. And so the Jews, every time they do this, they, they, should, they should be thinking, man, I need, I need the ultimate. I don't want the shadow. I need the reality. They should have known there was something missing. A lot of sacrifices continually going on year after year, but the removal of the sin was not happening. It was temporary, if anything happened, because Hebrews 10, verse 4, says this, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Impossible. Impossible. Well, some people, they, they read this stuff and they say, well, what's the point? Why make the sacrifices when Hebrews says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away my sin? Well, the sacrifices were pointing to Jesus Christ. They're all pointing to Christ. They were just preparing the way for the better hope. You know what Hebrews says? Look at this. Look what Hebrews says in chapter 7, verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A better hope. That's good news. There's a better hope. And so Israel, ever since Mount Sinai, every year there was to be a day of atonement where sacrifices were made for the covering of their sin, looking forward to Christ. Let's just think uh, for a moment here about the Day of Atonement in biblical times. Here are some things I've learned. Seven days before the Day of Atonement, the preparation of a red heifer occurred. Now, you can read about that in the book of Numbers if you're interested. Another thing that happened is the high priest was actually removed from his house and he had to go to a chamber that was in the temple. There was this this uh, this time period waiting, coming to the Day of Atonement. I also found it interesting there was a second high priest that was actually appointed for the Day of Atonement as well, just in case the first high priest died or he, he was somehow made himself unclean they had a they had a backup plan, if you will, a <laughs> second high priest. Uh, that was interesting. And then there was another funny thing I found. Well, I think it was just funny. Uh, I found out in one of their writings, uh, Israel's writings, that a second wife was appointed in case the high priest's wife died during this time period. Ladies, how would you like to be that one? No, I don't. <laughs> Uh, that's interesting. But during the seven-day period, the high priest was to sprinkle blood. And so it, this was done through the daily offerings. They were also supposed to be in the temple trimming the lamps, offering the head and the legs of sacrifices. And you say, well, why is he doing all this for all that time period? Well, think of it as practice. Leading up to the big day, the Day of Atonement. It was practice for the coming Day of Atonement. Uh, the elders would daily read to the high priest. And you know what they were reading to him? Leviticus chapter 16. So every day the, re- the, the other priests are reading to the high priest. Here's what you need to know. Leviticus 16, it's all about the Day of Atonement. So you, you can read that on your own. And, and then the day before the ceremony, the high priest was taken 
through a dress rehearsal. He, he was to practice the, this whole particular, what is he supposed to do on this day so he wouldn't get it wrong? Don't mess it up. It only happens one time a year. You've got to get it right. And that's what they did. And then on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, he was taken for a bath. Of course, that never dealt with the inside, did it? But nevertheless, it's all ritual stuff, right? And so he had this, 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 this bath. On the day he was to bathe, not just once, not just twice, not just three times. He had to do it five times. Five times. And, and he also had to wash his hands ten times. Oh, man, poor guy. Looking like a prune probably by that time, wasn't he? But uh, after all that bathing, then he had to put on his, his garments of gold cloth. And then he had to wash his hands again. And then the morning sacrifice was brought to the high priest. And there was another priest that was, that was there helping in the process, all that slaughtering that was going on. And he would sprinkle blood. He would take the incense into the temple, trim the lamps, the lamp, sorry, offer the, the head and the, the members of these animals were offered as well. Afterward, the high priest would bathe again, because he, he probably messy at this point, right? So he had to bathe again. He had to put on new white clothes. And then he, he would be taken to the bull, which would serve as, as his own sin offering. And then he would place his hands on the bull. He would confess his own sins before the bull was slaughtered. And then he would lead the two goats. Remember, there was a scapegoat, and then there was to be a goat designated to die as a sacrifice. And so he would lead those two goats. And, and then the high priest would, um, they, they would have lots drawn, if you will, which goat was the scapegoat and which one would die. The high priest would remove the lots, each one in each hand, and one goat was, was marked for slaughter. The second goat, the scapegoat, was marked. What, would they, what they did was they put a red thread of wool over the head of the scapegoat. The high priest would return to the bull a second time and again place his hands on the bull, confess his sins again, and he'd slaughter the animal. And he would catch some of the blood of the bull in a silver basin. Again, you can see a picture of a bull on the screen here somewhere. And then he would walk to the altar, fill his censer uh, with hot coals, and he would then he would walk to the holy place and position that censer so that the smoke and the incense would fill the entire house. The high priest was to leave that holy place, and he didn't walk forward. He had to walk backwards. You know why he had to walk backwards? Because he was to always face the mercy seat. Always face the mercy seat. You'll see a picture of a priest before the Ark of the Covenant. And, and so, it, you notice here, he, he'd returned to the Holy of Holies a second time with the blood of the bull. And he would sprinkle that there at the mercy seat before the Ark. And then the high priest would exit. At this time, the priest would bring the, uh, the high priest, the, the goat, for slaughtering. 
And he would then return to the Holy of Holies a third time, sprinkling the goat's blood. And again, as he's exiting out of the Holy of Holies, he's sprinkling the blood of the bull and the goat and all this stuff going on. You'll see, by the way, a picture of the, the veil in the temple. That's outside the Holy of Holies. Messy place, I'm, I'm, I can imagine by this point. But the, what it, one of the things he's doing is he's mixing the blood of the bull and the goat. And he would place it on the, uh, even on the corners of the altar. And then he would go to the scapegoat, place both hands on the scapegoat. He would confess his sins again. And then the scapegoat would be led away into the wilderness. Why? Well, you've got to read Leviticus chapter 16. Verse 22 tells you why. Because it says, The scapegoat was to bear upon him all the sins of Israel. All the sins of Israel were on that goat. And so then he just wanders off into the wilderness, probably to eat weeds. I don't know. What do goats do? But uh, so again, you see someone's drawing of the scapegoat. The sins on the scapegoat. Traditionally, a, a crimson thread of wool was hung on the door of the temple. And if the, the strip of cloth turned white, Israel would rejoice. That's according to tradition. So, what was the Day of Atonement picturing? There's a lot of stuff going on there, isn't there? What was it supposed to picture? Of course, we know based on Hebrews, Christ is our great high priest. Christ provided the atonement for our sins. He did what the what Israel's high priest could never do. Let's think through some scriptures here, like Romans chapter 3, verse 23, tells us this. Look at this on the screen. Here's the bad news. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the good news. You're also justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we have a huge problem. Our greatest problem is our sin problem. All have sinned, it says. And as a result, you have fallen short of God's standard of perfection, of of ultimate holiness, You can't make it on your own. You need one who is holy. You need somebody to take your sin who is holy. That's what Jesus did for us. So then we are able to be justified. And so another thing that happened is that the ceremonies of the Day of Atonement are a pattern of the atoning work of Christ. So we can learn something even though this was meant for Israel. There's a pattern here. For example... Like I already said, Jesus is our high priest. Look at this passage here. Hebrews 9, verse 11. says that Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. 
And so as the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies, remember, he's entering in not with his own blood, but with uh, that high priest would enter in with the blood of the sacrificial offerings. We see in Hebrews, Jesus entered in not multiple times, but one time, and he's coming not with animal blood, but he comes with his own blood into the holy place. And so Hebrews 9 verse 12 says, on the screen for you, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So He did what all those other priests for thousands of years couldn't do. And then Hebrews 9.24, again talking about Christ, says this, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So that's good news. That's great news. (laughs) See, Christ does not have to offer the sacrifices repeatedly as the Levitical high priest did. And so then you come to verse 25 of Hebrews 9, and it says this, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice, not of animals, I just added that part, it's not animals, but it's by himself. Another thing we, we, we see here is the tabernacle, along with the Old Testament offerings, pictured the better sacrifice Christ would offer. Again in Hebrews 9, but this time in verse 13, it says, For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ? who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so, what happens? The perfect Lamb of God, who is also the high priest, he comes, and at the moment Christ died, the veil in the temple rips in two. It says, the Bible says it was torn in two from top to bottom, something that no human being could do. Matthew 27 tells us this. That event is important, very important event. It's not just there to uh, tickle your fancy, but what is it doing? It's establishing Christ as being the new high priest. It's, it's opening the way where Christ becomes your high priest and the Lamb. So no longer does there have to be the annual sacrifice for sin. The Day of Atonement didn't need to happen anymore. Instead, He's made the payment for us once and for all. And so Christ then enters into the real temple, as Hebrews says, the one not made with hands. And what does He do? Christ ascends to heaven, and He's our high, great high priest. He's there interceding on our behalf. And so what does this truth mean for believers then? If you're a believer, it means you don't don't need an earthly high priest. 
See, believers need not stand far off either, as the Israelites did. They were never allowed into the Holy of Holies. Only one person was allowed in there one time a year. The Israelites stood far off. But now you can approach the throne of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, through your great high priest. And now you can go to the throne of God 24-7. Not just one day out of the year, but every day of the year 24-7. Well, remember on this Day of Atonement there were two goats. I find this interesting. So let me give you a little bit more information about the two goats. So Leviticus 16 says there were, there were supposed to be two goats that were required for one sacrifice. Both sacrifices were fulfilled in the death and the resurrection of Christ. And by using two animals, you'd, you'd have one killed, the other was set free. They represented Christ's death and His resurrection. So one's dead, one lives. The first goat pictures God's wrath satisfied by His death. Romans 5.9 says this. It's on the screen for you. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. See, my friends, you need to be saved from God. You see that? You need to be saved from God. And in the process, the only one who can help you and give you hope is Him. So in one sense, you need to run from Him, but in the other sense, you need to run to Him. Isn't that interesting? And so the scapegoat here is illustrating our sin being carried away, never to be remembered anymore, and in the process, we can be reconciled with God. No longer His enemy, but His friend. So the scapegoat illustrates the intercessory work of Christ. Because look at this, Romans 5, verse 10. says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Have you been saved by His life? Do you understand what that means? You probably never will fully understand that, but... Is your faith in the one who has saved? Is your faith in the great high priest, the Lamb of God, the one who now intercedes for believers? Where does your faith lie? See, God wants you to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. He's the one who has fulfilled all those feasts we've been talking about. He's going to fulfill some of them in the future. So what are you believing in? What are you trusting in? There's only one who can give you real hope. See, if it's in anything other than Christ, you have no hope, my friend. So I, I trust that you will understand these things, what they're pointing to, pointing to Christ. He's your only hope. He's the one who can deal with your, your sin problem, your great problem being sin. And so you can pray to Him. You can pray to Him any time you want. You have a high priest. You have a mediator between you and God. Avail yourself of this wonderful blessing. And so I, I pray that uh, God would enable us all to understand these, these things, why they're there. 
put them into practice where they can be practiced. They're a blessing. God wants us to remember Him and His works. He enables us to remember Him and His works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we not just think of these biblical feast of Israel as something for Israel, but you, you, you have so much there for us to remember. They're all pointing to Christ, so may we see Christ. May we not lose sight of Him in the midst of all these interesting details. As Israel so often did, they forgot God and His works. Forgive us when we forget You and Your works. We worship ourselves and other things. We, we try to find satisfaction in other things that will never ultimately satisfy. Forgive us for our idolatry. May we run back to Christ. and May we be satisfied with Him. So we look forward to a day when uh, the rest of these, these feasts will be ultimately fulfilled in Christ's second coming. May we be looking. May we be watching. May we be ready. May we uh, not think of earth as our, our home. May we think of ourselves as just pilgrims as passing through. Uh, the, 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 all these things that you've given to us to be stewards of don't really belong to us either. We're just stewards, managers of them. Looking forward to the, the greater reality. May that be our focus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.